Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Berno, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Today's show features not just one, but two guests who will provide super actionable insights to finally demystify the impact of climate tech funds. We will break down the most important concepts around impact measurement, such as SFDR, ESG, LCA, and other key acronyms ruling European climate tech. We will ask two of Europe's best impact experts how they put it all into practice when making investments and growing the startup portfolio. And we will answer some cheeky questions to figure out what is truly necessary and what is a bit overkill in this whole impact assessment world. Without any further ado, let's welcome our guest, Isabel Canu, partner at the Green European Tech Fund, and Stefan Mard, general partner at Climentum Capital. Let's go. Isabel and Stefan, welcome to Climate Insiders. Hi. Thank you. So for those that don't know you and the funds you represent, could you briefly introduce yourselves and your fund scope? Ladies first. Okay, thank you. So yes, I'm Isabel. Uh, I'm now a partner at the Green European Tech Fund. It's a clean tech fund for Europe, as the name uh, says. And besides of this, I have still my own consulting business on the field of ESG impact and sustainability for VC and PE funds. So I know quite a few of the fund managers in this area, but also of, generally speaking, VC and PE fund managers. And Stefan? Yeah, I think an important disclaimer here is that is that you and I work together, Johan, at Climentum Capital. So uh, I'm sure the I'm sure the listeners have heard your your intro part there. So I'm Stefan Mard. I'm one of the GPs at Climentum Capital, which is a European climate tech venture capital fund investing in seed and Series A. And we lean more towards the hardware side and sort of hard to abate industries. Also to set the stage here, a couple of years ago, Europe came up with a host of regulations. And as we often do, you know, the running joke in every new industry, the US innovates, China copies, and then the EU regulates. It looks like it's very much what's going to happen in the AI world and certainly in the climate tech space. So Stefan, would you say that it's that introducing a number of regulations to incentivize positive impact was the turning point for the industry or the emergence of climate tech funds would have happened regardless? Well, that's a good question, Johan. I, I think something would have emerged regardless. Look, I'm a big fan of Europe, just to be clear, right? But, but to be honest, Europe is behind the US on a number of things, right? Including VC, so trends in VC. It also, it also means we're behind sometimes also on bad trends. So it's not always a bad thing, right? Being in the front doesn't always end in good ways. I think also some AI people would, would say the same about that, that running right. full blast into AI might not necessarily be the smartest move in the world. But anyway, from a climate tech perspective, no matter what have been some amount of, of climate impact, the focus, right? And venture activity in Europe, no, no doubt. The regulation by the way, is not focused on DC. It never was, right? Not even private equity. Like it, it's really focused on large institutional capital. It's trying to take the hundreds of billions and tell them what good looks like and how they need to change behaviors. And then all that trickles down, right? Everything just runs downhill to us who are way, way down the capital stack. So what this 
regulation does, and for listeners who don't, don't know this, right, the super short version is that Europe says, all right, well, they didn't quite say it this way, but they kind of implied for the past many years, major financial institutions and major corporations have gotten away with murder. They could lie, say whatever they want, have voluntary standards, voluntary metrics, voluntary everything, right? And at the end of the day, you have scandal after scandal after scandal. And clearly, the European politicians were saying, look, we can't trust you as far as we can throw you. So we're going to develop the monster of regulatory frameworks to actually get you guys to behave, right? You can agree or disagree with that baseline. And of course, that was never a formal statement. I, I personally tend to agree, having been on the corporate side as well. So they said, okay, fine, that's the backdrop. So we, we can't do trust and voluntary stuff. We have to do regulation and mandatory stuff. So here's the SFDR. And one of the things we're going to tell you is that you need to publicly admit whether you don't care about sustainability care a little bit about sustainability or really care about sustainability. And depending on which bucket you put yourself in, it's called Article 6, 8, or 9. So 9 is dark green, 8 is light green, and, and 6 is whatever, some other color, right? Then when you said that you are 6, 8, or 9, you need to report accordingly. And we're going to tell you exactly how to report, what are the headlines in your reporting sections, how do you measure different things, all the mathematical formula for climate impacts, all that we're going to tell you, because otherwise you're just going to make something up and we're not going to trust you anymore again. So that's the high-level version. And so doing this, this whole push with SFDR, this whole push in regulatory movement, what does that do? So one thing it clearly does is that forward-leaning large institutional players in the finance sector, it's hard for them to say, oh, you know what, we're a pension fund and all our constituents uh, think we're sustainable, but we're actually just going to do Article 6 stuff, right? That's not going to work. So they have to set targets and they will set targets for Article 8 and Article 9 allocation. So how many of our billions go in 8 and 9 and so on? And that number is not going to go down over time. It's going to go up over time. Otherwise, they're not being responsible citizens. So I think the regulation, what it's doing is supercharging a shift of capital towards Article 8 and assets, which has not quite, I would say, hit yet. Like we see trends. The thing that we're banking on, and you know, time will tell if we're right, is that this will escalate and that the supply of Article 9 funds and assets is going to be lower than the demand for Article 9 funds and assets over the coming 10 years. A bit of the, the same dynamics with carbon credit in a way. The, the, the price of a, a carbon is so high, there will be constraint on, on the supply and then demand will rise. Would you say that, th thanks for the, the context on Article 6, 8, and 9, it sounds very esoteric from the outside, so thanks for the definition, but would you say that Article 9, as it stands, is the holy grail of impact assessment, and should it become the standard, or is it overkill? I'm going to move it to Isabel in a second, but look, my, my view is that regulation is never going to be perfect, right? And I personally really love the reason for this move into categorizing things, right? And I, I really like the spirit of Article 9. Is it a perfect model for VC? PE or anything? Of course not. But it's a good model. It's going to get better and better as they tweak, you know, and make it work and find the compromises as we need, right? So I'm kind of dodging the question. Like, is it the holy grail? I think holy grails are a big word. I really think the world needs this. And it's very typical, right? Like, the Europe decides to say, we're fed up, we're just going to set the rules and the rest of the world can follow or tell us we're idiots. And it's a kind of regulatory leadership that I think we need, because what ends up happening is the biggest fish in Europe adopt it, work with it, and then 
then it sort of via osmosis just sort of seeps into the U.S. and, and maybe also China. So at some point, being a U.S. actor saying, oh, look, we're brand spanking awesome and we're as dark green as you can possibly get. But then the same entity in Europe is reported as being not sustainable. Then that dissonance is going to be difficult for the entity to deal with, right, in a globalized world. And that's where the European model really is valuable is saying, well, we don't care what your random U.S. voluntary framework tells you how sustainable you are. It's not by our idea of sustainability. So you can call yourself as green as you want over there, but not over here. And that's really hard to do if you're a big bank or a pension fund or some entity that operates in both markets. You're going to take whatever is the highest common denominator to work with. Thanks for the context. And to you, um, Isabel, so we've sort of set the scene on uh, SFDR. Now let's go to, for those in the audience that are getting only familiar with some of the acronyms and definitions, could you define ESG? And how does it fit into the VC funds landscape and impact measurement? Is it complementary? Is it the same thing or something completely different? Yeah, thank you for your question, Johan, because I think we always have some semantic problems in this field. So perhaps to start with just sustainability, and I really love the definition that has been done by the United Nations Brundtland Commission, which defines uh, sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And I think that should be the goal of all our doing, actually. <laughs> but it seems not always the case, but if, I think it's very important. And in this aspect, we have a very multidimensional and multidisciplinary topic, which is economic, which is ecological for the E of ESG, S for social, and G is governance. And if you see ESG as all the non-financial aspects of a company, you always can describe a company with the financial figures and all the ESG aspect. And I think this is, this really helps to understand how, how to work with this world. So ESG is, if, if you want to, to start with this is, um, in, in the SFTR, it's about excluding all potential negative consequences on these aspects. So there are two ways of doing this. The first one is to work with exclusion list. And the second step is to integrate ESG consideration in the business model. So how does the business affect the climate, nature, biodiversity? How are humans affected by the business? And the tricky part is that it doesn't only target the own operations, but also all the supply. And this is what Article 8 funds should do. And for me, it's obvious everything which is not, uh, which are one of this aspect consequent, uh, in a very deep manner and which is not able to be mitigated, it is a no-go. So actually, from an investor point of view, we shouldn't invest in this type of business. And I think it is a major change in our attitude and in the attitude of investors is that they realize now that they have to take this into account. And since the start of SFDR in the market in 2021, most funds at the beginning thought, well, they haven't taken sustainability aspects into account until now, so why should they do? And they thought they can remain Article 6. But if you look at all the new funds, most of them have declared themselves as Article 8 fund and they take care of these aspects in their risk and compliance analysis. And this is very important. ESG is a risk and compliance aspect. Now, 
if you have a climate saving purpose, if you want to do more, and if you have a positive impact on E, S or G, then you are on the impact side. And this is very different from an ESG vision of the investment. And this means, of course, additional tasks for the investor. So you really need to engage with your company to have goals in the investment agreements to define a, a sustainability agenda, and of course, to measure the impact and to report on this impact. And that is what Article 9 funds do. Great. Well, thanks for the segue. So the question that we get asked all the time is how do you measure impact at the individual company level or the portfolio level? Yeah. So uh, the portfolio level, um, it's uh, just what I, I mentioned before, is the aggregation of what you do at the company level, of course. So it's it's a retail impact at the company level. And in our case, it is at the, at the level of a startup. And very important, the difference between, if we are still at the semantic aspect, the difference between purpose and impact is the measurement. So of course we need a measurement and uh, each of us are trying or is trying an, another way of us assessing the, is, the impact. So we work at uh, the Green European Tech, Tech Fund with a triple top line, which is a science-based approach developed by William McDonough and Michael Braungard. And they have developed this concept for project development. And my colleague Beatrice Böhm has adapted it to business plan development or startup development. So we dive very deep into the business model to find out what are the sustainability challenges for a company and in the field of tensions between the three dimension economy, ecology and social equity. So we shift the focus from the negative value judgments to questions of quality and enhancement. And we bring back the materiality into the sustainability approach. So what is really material to this business model? And we use it as a strategic and value creating tool. So we defined with the company the nine main challenges on the sustainability agenda. And this is what we track at the end with the company. And of course, in some cases, the life cycle analysis of the product that is being developed is key. And then it would be one of these dimensions. So when do you run this assessment? During the due diligence process, when you make, uh, you're about to make an, an investment decision, is it after DD or is it at the end of the fund? And you mentioned the life cycle analysis, LCA. Yeah. So we, we do it uh, in uh, many times, actually. We start with a, with, with a very brief approach of this uh, triple top line exercise at the beginning of the DD to make sure that uh, we have a chance to, to get through this. And then at the end of the DD towards the decision on the investment, we do a workshop with the, with the management of the company to really uh, be sure that we are all aligned on these aspects. So we don't want only to talk to, to the impact guy or lady of the company or the CFO of the company, but it is really about the overall management of the company. And that's the main exercise. And then we work on these nine KPIs and on this agenda every year with the company. And of course, we do it at the end of the investment and we will do it also at the end of the fund lifetime because we calculate our impact or overall impact. This is always about aggregation at the end of the fund. In an attempt to make it more practical for people listening, if you were to take an example, let's say a hydrogen production company, could you provide a bit of a, how you would run and conduct a pre-DD or during DD assessment of such company? And what would you push back until the end? Well, so I cannot do this now because it's always very much depends on the specific business model of the company. So it's it's not something that we can do out of only an idea of uh, or, or an industry sector. So we really have to, to really 
dive very deep into the business model. We are not specialized on the production plans. We uh, only invest in asset light uh, business models. So this is uh, something that probably where you are the, the real experts working on the life with the life science assessments on such plans. And in this case, if we would be willing to invest in such a company, then we would use LCA as well as you do as one of the aspects. Stefan, let's turn it to, over to you um, to define LCA, how we conduct at our fund level an LCA. What do you take internally? What do you externalize in the events where it becomes really complex? And maybe what are the recommendations that you would give to the ecosystem and other funds? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's important, again, to think of sort of the, the level of detail and depth of an LCA. So a life cycle analysis or assessment you can do that to sort of the full gold standard, meeting all protocol requirements and third party review and everything. Right. And that's sort of a big piece of work, several thousands of euros. Right. And, and usually many weeks of work. That's where you want to end up. If you want to sort of launch a product in the market and you want to claim something, then you need sort of that high level sort of full, full uh, top quality LCA work. But to make investment decisions, you can do less, right? And we have something we call an LCA light, which is not a technical term. It's something we made up. <laughs> but basically, that is using LCA engineers and LCA databases and everything there is, right? But doing sort of a quick and dirty within sort of a week and that work, you know, think of it as an 80-20 rule, right? We, we think we're going to be 80% right roughly, right, with that work. And that's enough for us to continue with investment decisions. The step before that, sort of before LCA, that's what I think most people funds do is sort of back of the envelope, whatever. What could happen with this company, this technology, blah, blah. I think it's just a quick watch out here. From back of envelope to LCA light. So if you accept the ventures own back of envelopes, then I can say that the delta from the back of envelopes to the LCA light, I don't have a clear number yet. We have that many data points, but it's something like one fifth of what they think they achieve is what they achieve. Mm -hmm. So it's 80% lower than they think it is <laughs> because they haven't thought through <laughs> the LCA components. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't, I mean, in some cases they're precise, but in some cases they're just even worse than that, right? It's just saying there's a big step from back of the envelope to doing things according to scientific and engineering basis. Okay. So, so we, we do the back of the envelope ourselves. And like I'm implying, that's not always very clear. Then we get to LCA light. And this is where we get to a point where we feel, okay, we can use this as part of our impact DD work, which enables us to make it decision. And then we, of course, hope that when they go to full quality LCA, we set requirements for when they need to be at full LCA level. And that is usually, uh, I think the way we word it is 12 months, within 12 months of a product going into market. And what does that really mean? Depends on the product and the market and so on, right? But but we get to the full LCA or they get to that point, which hopefully validates our LCA light findings. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, and LCA is the, the way you describe it, and you were saying a couple of thousands of euros so times uh, the number of investments that you're doing or investments that will not go through. It sounds very expensive. Is this going to make VC money even more expensive, or can you remain cost competitive in this whole competitive landscape already? That's a good question. I think it also depends on, on your mindset as a VC, right? So some VCs like high management fees and very high salaries for people, right? And then, of course, oh, it's so expensive with an LCA. It's like one fifth of my monthly salary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just joking a bit because it is, you know, it's like whatever. Yeah. 
Of course, we can afford it. It's like, there's not that much, right? When I look at the impact costs that we do on DD work, it's probably between uh, 50 and, and 100% of the legal costs. And it's usually less than 50, actually, about 50%. So if you take the legal cost, cut it in half, then that ends up being our impact DD costs. And usually less, actually, usually less, you know. And, and when you look at fund economics, how does that all work, right? It, it also, like, who's paying for what, right? So, so was it management companies at the fund and so on? And this, this is a lot, there's a lot of mechanics around this stuff that I think will bore the listeners. I think it's fair to say that the way we've designed our sustainability impact ESG SFDR <laughs> assessment piece, that that is not a critical cost factor, a critical cost driver. It doesn't prevent us from being competitive at all. Okay. That's good to know. So. Uh, Isabel, I wanted to, to go back to you and ask a open and, and, and honest question. You know, it's worth asking whether is it responsible to become Article 9 at early pre-seed and seed stage? Or should it really, given the cost, given the expertise, given the, the timeline required to conduct such assessment, be exclusive for Series A and growth stage funds? No, I mean, it's it's a question of, of definition. Of course it is. I mean, if it's a question of which is the purpose of the investment and will I uh, be willing and able to measure the impact? So if you answer both questions with yes, Yes, then of course it makes sense to be an Article 9 fund. And I'm very convinced that it is very important to engage very early with the companies to help them developing their, their business plans uh, or their business models uh, sustainably. So that's why it's so important to start very early and, and not to say, well, it's something because we need more data than we need to start later. Sustainability is not about measuring everything. What you need is the right data the right data with high quality and to make sure that you benefit from the data collection and that you don't collect whatever figures that make no sense for your business model. If you do so, then it makes a lot of sense to start early and to, and to have the, the management being aware of what they are doing and then to help them using this data for creating more value and for developing in the right way. So no, it's not something only for the big guys in the PE funds or in the growth uh, area, but it's also something which makes a lot of sense very early, probably already in, in, in the pre-seed area. If you talk with the, with the business founders and they understand early what is sustainability, then you have uh, won quite a lot. So, so let's be contrarian here. And I'm sure, Stefan, you would probably concur in that direction. There's the intentions and there's the reality check, right? Which is uh, what we're asking to be Article 9 compliant to the founders is enormous, right? And in most cases, we like a lot of data, but we like a ton of information, but also they just don't have the capacity to stretch themselves from running a business, hiring people, uh, finding product market fit, and on top of it, being already Article 9 compliant. Would you say that it makes sense to do all this at pre-seed and seed stage, or, or would you rather park that, you know, or and, and even potentially apply that to private equity and growth funds only? Yeah. So if I can just say, yeah, it, I think there's, there's an important distinction here between being, you know, being considered a sustainable investment as per the way Climentum is applying Article 9. That's one thing, right? So we say we're Article 9 and this is how we define sustainability and, and this is how the company fits. That's one thing. Being taxonomy aligned is not the same thing. Okay. So a company to be, for a company's economic activities to be taxonomy aligned, they have to meet a very high bar. I am going to be the first person who's happy to say that I 
I almost can't imagine a company before Series A that can be taxonomy aligned. Right? I think it's almost impossible. It'd be a weird, it'd be a weird choice of resource use. Why, why is that? Could you could you define? Could you explain why? Because in in the taxonomy, and this is where the rubber hits the road, right? With the European Commission saying, you know, we're done with lies and nonsense. Now we want to have something real. And then they sat down and said, well, if you want to make electric vehicles. Then here's a 40 page document telling you what is sustainable and what is not. And I'm exaggerating, obviously, right? But the point is they're saying, oh, well, if you're sourcing this metal from, you know, mines in Congo that are killing people, then no, it's not a sustainable EV, right? Thank you very much, which I can only agree with, right? So again, they, they set all these criteria, but like a pre-seed company doesn't know where it's sourcing anything from yet, right? And the other thing it says in this, in these technical, technical standards for taxonomy. In the technical standards, it also says you need top-level LCA, right, if you want to uh, confirm alignment. Not always, but in many cases, that's one of the requirements, right? And like I said, we don't even do that in the investment process. We expect that later when it makes sense for the company. So I just want to separate those, right? Article 9, early stage, and taxonomy alignment are not the same, but they need to be as close as possible, right? Otherwise, you're you're not in the spirit of the system, right? And, and also, frankly, you'll probably get beaten up by the regulators. So the way we do it is we've taken, if you will, taxonomy alignment and what they call do no significant harm and minimum safeguards. So all the pieces of SFDR. And then we said, what does that need to look like for early stage companies? And we distinguish between micro enterprises, medium sized enterprises, large enterprises, and depending on how big you are, our requirements on governance and documentation are lower, right? Uh, not irrelevant at all, but they're lower, much lower. So, so far, we haven't had any problems with our portfolio companies meeting our needs because they're, they're attainable and they're, they're right sized. Now, having said that, the whole idea is that they graduate, right? They graduate to bigger companies with higher requirements until they actually are at a point where the commission comes and looks at our fund and says, yeah, you guys are actually helping companies go from early stage to taxonomy aligned companies over time. But if we were just setting the bar too low over here on, on pre-seed and seed, or there wasn't any warm up of the companies uh, towards graduation, we, we wouldn't be taken seriously and we'd get a, we'd have a problem. Let me, let me give you a, a, an example, right? So for example, for large companies, you might have to have a specific remuneration policy relating to impact. So the company's incentive structures need to be such that employees don't behave in unsustainable ways, right? We're not going to ask appreciate companies to develop a full-fledged policy as part of a wider employee handbook and data set, right? All we say at the very stage, the very start is, uh, is this something that you're uh, thinking about for your future growth? I'm exaggerating. I don't think that's the wording, but we're basically just preparing them mentally for the things that are coming when they grow up as opposed to requiring them now. Does that make sense? Yes, no, uh, very much so. And, and I wanted to go back to the game of definitions and something that stands out as well when you conduct an LCA and impact measurement is attribution versus additionality. And maybe Isabel, can, can you provide a, a, a brief definition and explain why it's so tricky and maybe which one of those is the biggest problem? To address. I would just um, come back to, to what uh, Stefan just uh, just mentioned uh, before, if I may. This is a, a very important uh, aspect of the of the regulation because the the SFDR has been set up as a transparency uh, regulation to make sure that the investors know what they are investing in, and that is 
key actually in what we want to have because we don't want have to have greenwashing. And this was a good idea to say, just tell us what you are doing. And we don't define what is sustainable and what is not. We just, just want you to, to, to give us inform the information. And then we got the taxonomy on top of that and with very, very precise definition of everything, which has been developed not for startups, but for big companies in so-called relevant sectors and having a significant impact. So when you already listen to relevant sectors and significant impact, you already know a startup is not, has not have been considered, taken into consideration by the regulator. And we have been led alone with these two regulations and how to deal with this for startups. And the very interesting thing is that this is a EU regulation which is the same everywhere, but uh, the supervision is a national supervision. So every regulator has defined it a, a very different way from very cool, let's say, to give it back to the industry. So having the auditors deciding on what is, uh, what is sustainable or not, or to very careful, let's say, and saying first, okay, but if you want to be an Article 9 fund, you have to be taxonomy aligned. And they didn't know how, how it works, as Stefan just mentioned. So we had at the beginning, uh, especially in Germany, I know that you are not uh, registered in Germany, but the, for the German funds, it was a nightmare because the, the regulator thought if they are not taxonomy aligned, then they are not Article 9. Fortunately, we made it to, to convince the regulator that it cannot be possible because the taxonomy alignment will come later. But this was a, very, a long discussion uh, in, in, here in, in this country. So now the very interesting thing, and I'm, I'm not sure if you, if you know this framework, the European Investment Bank and the European Investment Fund have realized that, that they have a huge issue here and they have developed what they call the CA and ES, so climate action and I think environmental, I don't know, uh, something. Uh, I can I can give it to you, uh, Johan, to put it in the, in the comments, but it's very interesting. So they have taken the taxonomy and transferred it on the lower level uh, of the, of smaller enterprises. And then if you read this, you realize, okay, what we are doing is of course, the aligned with the transformation of taxonomy into small business. So we can feel uh, confident about this. And of course, it is very important to, to attribute the impact to, to our investment. And that is, that comes back to what I mentioned. If you track the data, which is really embedded in the business model, then it is quite easy to attribute it to this. Additionality is, uh, is of course a bit more tricky, but I don't think it is really relevant in our business because if there wouldn't be this company, then, well, you know, so it's additionality has been done for, for project financing and not so much for the financing of business creation, creating a business or, help or supporting the creation of the business, you add something to, to what they do and to, to the technological development that they promote. Stefan, maybe if we could use examples to make it more practical, attribution additionality on, for example, insect farming, which is a case that you, you, you know quite well. How, how would you effectively conduct an impact assessment on such a case where you're producing insects to generate uh, protein and uh, why does the source of the feed is so important so just to, to illustrate those concepts in a practical manner yeah. i think it's a the question of attribution is, is an interesting one because it really is how much of a given savings of emissions do you get to attribute to the given company or 
dealing with is the question that I think is being answered now here and there, right? But it's it's a bit of a beast of a question. So take the, the example you're mentioning, right? Let's say a hypothetical company is providing, you know, technology inputs into a sector. So I'm making some technology for insect farming. And because of so a, a, an insect farm that used my technology is whatever, 20% more efficient. It generates more protein than, than the, the other farms. All right. Then you say, right, so the farm, the farm owner, he's going to say, well, or she's going to say that 20% benefit accrues to me, right? I'm the one buying the machine. I'm the one generating the protein, right? But then the person buying the insect protein to feed the fish is also saying, well, I'm buying this low carbon fish food, right? So I also get to count it, right? And then we, the VC, invested in a company which sold it to another company is also saying, yeah, we're going to take total credit for all of this uh, saved emissions, right? Just as the company we're investing in is also taking full credit for all the emissions. So at the end, you're like, okay, clearly, we're not just double counting or triple counting. We're like quintuple, sextuple counting carbon savings around the world. Everybody is, right? And that's why I think an important question, and sorry, let's be a bit of a caricature, right? But Take it back to the VC side, right? We invest in companies. These companies generate some savings in their scope three, right? And then first, the first important distinction is I, I like this idea of talking about financed emissions versus actual emissions because we're not doing actual emission saving. We're financing emission savings. So let's just cut the crap in half right there, right? So we talk about financed emissions or financed emissions reduction. The next question is, okay, so this let's say this company the farm level is generating whatever. 100 farms is a million tons or something, right, of CO2 is saved. How much of that million tons do we get to say is thanks to this technology? Let's say 20% because that was the efficiency gain. All right. Now, how much of that does the company get to claim? How much do we count the capex on the farm side as value? How much do we count the technology development on the venture side? And and there are models, there are emerging models for how to standardize the question of attribution, but it's not been standardized yet. So what's happening right now is that all ventures and all investors are counting everything pretty much, right? And then some pet parties, like for example, one of our LPs, BASF, in their corporate reporting, they have an attribution range. They basically say, look, we generally account for 20% of the cost of whatever stuff we go into. So we're going to take 20% and not more. So that's the very sort of adult approach to it, right? They're doing it even though no one else is really doing it. But that has to come. Like there has to be a point where we can't be multi-counting savings because it's useless data in the end. That's why I think attribution is really important. And it gets, I get extra irritated when you, and this is where also again the, the sort of US mindset comes in, right? Oh, we save gigatons. We are giga, gigacorns. Like, shut up. You're not. You're not even close. You're like one hundredth of that. But of course, you're a loudmouth American claiming whatever the hell you want to claim to your LPs to get whatever money you want to get in the door. And this is where the cultural shift to the Nordics is really crazy, right? So I struggle. I struggle with salesmanship that turns into close to ball-faced lying. And I look forward to there being consensus, uh, hopefully political on attribution so we can start saying intelligent things like our fund invests in the seed stage, we take 15% ownership, and if a company then has 100,000 units, then we have 15% of the financed emissions of that. And it sounds really boring and engineering-like, but that's where we need to go in the world. We can't have all this 
salesmanship nonsense that has no finger in reality. And let's speak about the so beyond attribution. Another problem is a lot of those cases are pretty edge cases. They're not as obvious as this sound, right? What do you do? And you had a very good example, which is a, a project development startup. So there's a lot of startups that are innovating, putting all their you know uh, efforts on R&D and developing a new innovation. But there's a lot of uh, startups that are focusing on how do we operate? How do we execute? How do we scale? Uh, could you just speak you know, about a project development case where analyzing the actual impact is really tricky? Oh, yeah. So a case where project development assessment is tricky. I mean, we haven't done this yet. Right. Just to be clear, we're looking at some examples of this, but it's also a really interesting one. Right. Let's say that you're this is not what we're looking at, but let's say we were looking at someone who wanted to develop, you know, offshore floating wind, whatever. Right. And they wanted to become the next, you know, CIP or the next Orsted or whatever, the next major PE fund doing mega projects like that. And then we look at them and say, okay, so how do we think about this? Right. So you design a project, you get permits, you get agreements on offtake, on supply and blah, 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 all this work. But you haven't actually put a single wind turbine in the ocean yet. So and you're going to sell the whole project as a company to a mass, a major asset owner. And then you will get your return and we will get our return on your profits. But there still isn't a turbine in the water. That is one of the cases where you're like, OK, it's just clearly you have to have an intelligent view on what do you get to claim there, right? So you'll you'll see again VCs who are like, oh yeah, there's going to be all these wind blades, and we're going to take 100% credit for all the CO2 from all the wind blades from the venture that we don't own anything in because it was sold before we even well as we were owners, we weren't involved in it anymore. Their attribution really becomes like, okay, I I really want to see your logic on this one, right? How are you going to make that case? And of course, it doesn't mean it's hard to do the assessment. I mean, in this case, you know roughly what a wind blade is going to generate. You know, run. You know what the inputs are. You know what the carbon emissions are of the everything that went into getting the blade up there. Now, this this is just back to the attribution drama, right? No, I just wanted to to summarize it because theoretical impact is not impact or potential impact is not impact. So it's really tricky to to work like this. I, I completely agree with you, Stefan. And uh, we don't invest in project financing because of this, partly because of this. I think uh, project investments are not VC cases, but if we would do so, then you have really have the problem of measuring the impact with the time frame of your fund lifetime. And this is probably very low. Right. And, and let's speak about cases that are that are complex and there's a, a lot more than than it sounds do you rely on external service providers professionals or software is there any recommendation that you could provide to the ecosystem to just help them save months or years of learning so isabel yeah i mean uh, you know very interested in what you do with these lca lights and i i know the the guys you you work with and i, I really appreciate them and i i think all of them working in this field should combine efforts to make uh, lca lights more digital, more automated and cheaper at the end. So that's uh, really something that I really want to insist on because that would make our under asset class of uh, impact investing much more powerful if we make it to to have a transparent, uh, easy way of uh, calculating 
lifecycle assessments. For carbon uh, counting, of course, you have to, to use experts. It fits very, if you, you need a, a deep analysis and uh, probably if, if you are, uh, if you have a business model very much focusing on this, then they will probably know already experts, but I don't know. Otherwise we would use some on this. The rest of the technical aspects, we would do them uh, internally. And the next uh, service provider, apart from having a, a fund admin uh, software, uh, we of course uh, need a software uh, to track all these KPIs and to do the reporting and so on. So they, they have now... I, I don't know uh, with how many of uh, of this type of service providers I had uh, discussions in the last months. There are many of them. I don't know if you want to recommend one. I, I think it's 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 too tricky, and I wouldn't like to do this in your podcast. But Stefan, if you want, I'm happy to listen to your recommendation. Uh, first, I want to say that on the reporting side, I agree. There's a dime a dozen in terms of platforms where you can where they yeah. So look, we use one today, but I'm not ready to recommend them uh, yet. Okay. Yeah, I might okay. change my mind. But so far, it, it feels like it's a, it's a space that is quickly and should become super commoditized, right? Mm -hmm. But on uh, when it comes to experts, there's two things that we like to bring in for the final part of the DD, the heavy lifting. So you mentioned the LCA people. So we use Climate Point, which to do the LCA lights, but also full LCAs. And Climate Point is... Uh, yeah, I can I can strongly recommend them. I mean, they simply have a, a, a modern, intelligent approach to LCA. Right? I, I used to run an LCA department, and the number of Excel files and PDFs uh, that were fundamentally static was expensive and, and expensive. Right now, uh, Climate Points model is cheaper, smarter, uh, active, multi-user, uh, web-based, cloud-based. It's not everything you expect these days from a, an intelligent service provider. I'm sure there are others uh, uh, probably trying to do the same, but right now that the, the, the game in town that, that we're backing and, and we're, well, not backing, we're just customers. <laughs> but we work closely with them and it's, it's a pleasure. But I would also say, I mean, Isabel, people like you, right? We, we, we need, when it comes to going into the depths of ESG and do no significant harm, minimum safeguards assessments, we Yes, I can do it in theory, most of it uh, myself, but I, I do like to rely on experts. So there are little boutique consultancies that we engage that are very strong in that stuff. And we've used mostly one called Song Consulting, the Danish-based one, and they're very good. I can recommend them, but it's a small outfit, right? It's just two experts who are who are really deep in into this kind of stuff for that size of company. But yeah, on the impact side, that's pretty much it, right? There's the reporting tech piece, there's the LCA tech piece, and then there's the ESG SFDR assessment work. Yeah, good, good, good transition. So let's switch gears and talk about the the reporting, the reporting towards LPs in particular. How do you document all this for LPs, and when do you have to start, re, you know, reporting back to LPs? What are some of the best practices do you recommend to other fund managers? Meaning it seems overkill at the start to report on an early portfolio. If it's one year old, two year old, when do you start reporting? Do you start reporting from the start or do you actually push it back till the end of the fund? Uh, because that's only then you start having meaningful data and LPs can keep you accountable. Maybe Isabel, can you speak about your, your fund? Yeah, so you really, being under the SFDR, you have uh, reporting requirements, which are at least once a year. So uh, there is no way of get, of stepping out. So that's life. Since we do ESG due diligence at the beginning, and then we track the KPIs, we will probably have 
this data to the quarterly reports that we do anyway to our LPs and then have the aggregation of all this data once a year for the SFTR uh, reporting. I think that's the best way to, to handle it. But I'm not sure yet. I mean, we haven't really started operations yet. So I, I'm still struggling a bit, but I think it, this is what, what makes a lot of sense. And the ESG aspect uh, are these principal adverse impacts, which are defined in the SFTRs. And that's things that you track for the DD and then you track them anyway, all over the life, lifetime of your investments. So you have the data and then you can report of them. Of course, the changes will not be tremendous from quarter to quarter, but if it's important to your LPs, then it's fine. And it, it reminds me of one thing that I wanted to add to, to the question before, Stefan. There is one thing which has surprised me a lot in my former job in the ESG analysis. Uh, we added the social aspect to the legal DD. So we had the lawyers checking the working conditions of the of the employees. And I was upset about the results because in, uh, let's say, 70 to 80% of the cases we had findings on the working agreements or social security agreement of the people. I mean, there, there are a lot of bad reports on the working conditions in startups. And I think we are responsible as a, as a shareholder to make sure that people uh, have proper uh, working conditions and proper uh, working contracts. And um, that's something that I would uh, redo anytime to have the lawyers checking not only all type of contracts of the companies, but also all these social aspects. And Stefan, I, I wanted to use here this opportunity to ask about a reality check on of what we are, since we were talking about reporting, we also as startup founders to report back to us as um, shareholders, which is not an easy task. And I wanted to, to know what, what is the role here of a climate tech VC? So we differentiate ourselves by having impact alignment, but also we have the capabilities that a startup founder might not have. Is it our responsibility to provide impact counseling to founders? If yes, what kind of impact? Is it a lot of babysitting? Is it a quarterly you know, session? Any insights you could share here? I think you kind of answered your own question there, Johan. <laughs> yeah, I think it very much behooves us as an investor to help our founders on this journey. Right. Yeah. I think if you take a hands off approach in the later stage investing, maybe, maybe that's fine. Right. You can expect them to to have relevant staff and resources and so on. But in the early days, it's really the executives, the, often just the CEO doing this stuff. Right. And you're not really doing yourself a favor as an investor or them by just sending them 60 questions that they don't really even understand and tell them to report and give data on because all you're doing is distracting a CEO who is supposed to be creating value for you and putting stuff in the world, right, to do reporting. Again, that's a caricature. But I just, I think you answered your own question. Yeah, we, you, you need to, you sh we should be providing help. The question isn't whether, the question is is sort of how much, right? So in my mind, you, you have sort of two extremes. Uh, you have do, do nothing at all, don't help at all, right? And the other is sort of the Andreessen Horowitz model, right? Or A16Z as it is today, where if we were a version of them, we would have like our own entire staff of just impact experts and LCA experts and, and reporting experts and everything. And we would basically be providing those as part of our investment to the companies to have like an outsourced sustainability function to help them get to where they need to go. My view is that somewhere in the middle is probably the right place to be, right? So I think doing too much for them, they're not actually on the learning journey that they need to be on, but doing too little and you're not, and you're basically, a, a, you know, a weight on their feet, right? So around their ankles. 
So we, we try to do something in the middle, which is at board level and in sort of CEO engagement level to continuously help answer questions, provide guidance, provide templates, and also provide access to experts that we recommend for, for all the different aspects that they need. And we have those for, again, for LCA, for ESG strategy and impact strategy work, for also things like soft money sourcing. These are things that we, we know a lot about and have a lot of strong network in, and we try to extend that to our portfolio companies. Now, adding on top of it, and, and again, to you, Stefan, is uh, oftentimes we invest early stage where intentions are aligned, but the commercial path might just diverge in completely different directions. And as a startup founder, we have to recognize that opportunistically, they're more inclined to pursue what is commercially attractive than what is potentially impactful. What do you do in that case? I, I, you, you, you might take a lead on a, on a particular on a particular deal and have a certain ownership at the seed stage that will dilute at series A and even more at series B. Your power of decision definitely gets diluted along the way, assuming the commercial outcome, you know, is the same, which which pathway to Yeah, that's an important caveat though, right? So let me just take it from the start there. So a company, you invested in a company, they were gonna do something green and good over here, right? And then somewhere along the line, they decide to do something, let's just say not bad, but less green, right? So instead of servicing market A, which would have given high impacts per unit, they service market B, which gives low impact per unit. So let's just take that example. And of course, they're doing it for commercial reasons. Then at the end of the day, it comes down to the incentives of the of the shareholders, right? So we are incentivized on both financial returns and on impact on the, and on, on climate returns. The reality is that the weight is more on finance than on impact. So in that particular case, the most likely mathematical conclusion would be that we would support them in the pivot for commercial success, right? Of course, now we're putting aside all kinds of complications, like, well, maybe they're doing a short-term light green so they can do long-term dark green, whatever. Like all the complications aside, most funds would be mathematically incentivized to go with lower impact for higher commercial gain. Now, the another case is you invest in a company that wants to go green, but then it decides to switch into black, right? It's going negative impact. In this case, we can no longer be a shareholder. Right. So in these cases, it doesn't align with Article 9 fund. Even the light green might not align with Article 9. Like we might have to divest anyway. But certainly if it's going negative, we're going to have to exit. And that's a whole complicated mess in itself. Right. But I think it's fair to say that the odds of a founder going to a point where one of their major investors has to publicly leave the company in a less than perfect financial exit, I think that's not in their interest, right? I mean, it could happen. You know, and this is so I think we're talking about hypotheticals, right? But I, uh-huh. I don't see that. I think I think the first scenario is more likely that a company was going to go dark green goes light green. And that that will often be okay, but sometimes it won't. And we'll have to say, well, if you go down that route, we can't actually be there anymore because it's not going to fit Article 9 requirements. So it's too early to tell, but you foresee in the future a potential case that might have shockwaves, right, for the industry. It's certainly a bad press. And so, as yes. you know, using that as a proxy to say to founders, do not go down that path. Well, m- maybe. Look, I don't want to tell founders what to do here because it's a tricky world, right? But I will say, yeah, I think you're right, Yuan. There are going to be situations where a dark green company goes brown 
or whatever the terminology really should be, or it goes dark green to light green, but to a lightest a light that's so light that it creates a problem on the investor base. Yeah, we're probably going to have some high profile violations, right? But I think hopefully, I think that'll happen, but I don't think it's a problem. Like I think we need to see a few of these things for the world to also understand mm-hmm. that this is serious, right? That there are repercussions from saying you're going to do A and then doing B. What we don't want is that it become is that becomes a very common phenomenon and suddenly there's a lack of faith in the system, right? But I think you're right. There will be cases and I think it's okay. I just hope they're not mine. <laughs> Isabel, did you want to add something? Yeah, the problem is inherent in the system of, of venture capital financing or private equity, because as you raise your fund, you don't know what would be the assets. So you go into the assets on a hypothesis of a financial strategy and of an impact strategy. And then at some point you have this question, this strategy doesn't work. And you have to change. And perhaps you will be financially successful with another strategy and it has less impact. So, of course, as a shareholder, you have to choose the commercial success. You cannot risk the success because of perhaps an impact. So at the end, you you will not reach the impact you have promised. And that's why we all probably compensate this with an impact carry. So we won't get the carry and we will have to donate this carry to something which has an impact. And that's the way we compensate this. And I'm quite sure the supervisory authorities will have to accept this because otherwise you wouldn't be able to have uh, an Article 9 fund without knowing the assets at the beginning of uh, when you set up the fund. And of course, that's that's a, a, a bad aspect for our uh, asset class, but I think it is the way it is. And if we compensate it at the end, I think we do the right thing. And I always say I'm happy to work in this asset class and not in the public equity asset class where you know the assets, but you don't know what is in the, in the assets on, from the ESG point of view, because you completely rely on ESG ratings. You don't know what they have done. Most of the time in these ratings, you can compensate an absolute red flag or something which is really yeah. bad with some policies, with some donations, with whatever. And at the end, you have a very, uh, an extremely good ESG rating and you are considered in Article 9 fund products, which is actually a joke sometimes. So I think if I was, I mean, I'm completely biased, of course, but if I was not biased and I would like to, to choose in which type of Article 9 funds would I invest? I would prefer to invest in a private equity venture capital Article 9 fund because the fund managers are reliable for what they are doing and they are reliable for the choice of their assets. In the other, the other fund managers, they are also reliable, but they have no idea because they are, they rely on the ESG ratings. And I'm not sure if you are, if you have, if you have seen this in the last months, Many, many of the asset managers has to downgrade all their Article 9 funds or all their Article 9 products to Article 8 or Article 6 even, because they said, well, okay, we have to completely rethink the way we deal with our assets. And the good thing about us is we are all very responsible people and we have all thought about, well, what will I do if I have the case you just described, Johan? And we said, okay, then we will compensate it. And I I don't know any Article 9 fund without an an impact carry and without this option of compensating at the end. So I think we all have a very responsible behavior and uh, we can't do anything else and or better, I think. As a piece of intel that you could share with the ecosystem. So when we got started designing this impact carry model, mm-hmm. so there's a double carry, the financial, you know, traditional uh, incentive, and then there's an impact incentive. Is, is there anything um, 
maybe Stefan, you could share on, on, on how to construct or what you've seen work really as a proper incentive, not to penalize the financial upside, but also to make sure that everyone is walking in a, the same direction. Well, that sounds like such an innocent question. <laughs> it really isn't. The problem is we don't know what good looks like yet, right? So we have a lot of funds who are communicating either that they have emissions reductions targets for their portfolio or realized emissions reductions. I think there isn't a week that goes by or two where I don't see some kind of new report with some claims on them. And those claims ultimately point back to some level of LCA work, right? Or, or maybe not even, maybe it's just back of the envelope work. And it's also not taking into consideration attribution. So it's, I feel like I'm just looking at a random bunch of fruits. It's not apples and apples or apples and pears. It's just all over the place, right? And then I think it feels like people are kind of communicating in within some range, not to seem, you know, not to not to seem too far off base. Okay, I'm being probably a bit cheeky now. I guess as I'm saying is in, in 10 years, I think we will know what good looks like. There will be results from funds who invested in different types of climate tech companies and, and there will be attribution considerations and we will have numbers and they will not be the big numbers you're hearing about today. It'll be much smaller, but real numbers, right? Oh, this fund actually... Adjusting for attribution saved 89,000 tons of CO2, which sounds like a tiny number, but that's probably what we're talking about, right? And then another fund which did really well would have saved a million or something, right? When we have enough of those data points, you can start as an LP to say, okay, well, I want the million. But however, I don't want the million where it comes from direct air capture or it comes from carbon removal because that's cheating. I just get to buy carbon removal projects and have big numbers. But I need it when it comes from industrial efficiency gains, right? Uh, sorry, it's a really, really boring answer. Just think of it this way. Some things are easier to decarbonize than others, right? And removing carbon direct from the air is a lot easier than helping an industry become lower carbon emitting, right? So you can have different types categories of carbon savings ventures or, or, or companies. And then you're going to have, and what, what does good look like in that category? And we need to get there, but we don't have enough data. So what we did, as you know, Johan, is we just looked around, did a top-down analysis, who said what, what does that look per, per million dollars? How much are they saying? And then we went bottom up and took the first 50 companies we were assessing and said, what are they actually going to deliver if we are careful and conservative and LCA-minded? And our conclusion was, well, you know, a million tons is not easy and it's also not impossible. Uh, and that is not with attribution. Right. So taking credit for the whole thing. So that's how we did it. And it's looking like we weren't wrong. Right. Because our companies, without saying too much. Yeah, we have a couple that can hit the million numbers. Right. But most of them are in the 100 to 300 thousand ton range at by the time we exit. So if our portfolio comes through and we have two or three winners, right? That'll hit probably shy of a million, right? So our target was ambitious, but not impossible. But again, we need to get through the attribution question as an industry before I feel this conversation can be had really intelligently. Yeah, and this is what scares me when I, our intention is really to accelerate the, the climate fight, right? But when we look at it realistically and putting aside the attribution question, if we in 10 years hit a million and realistically we need to mitigate, we need to reduce 55 gigatons of CO2 emissions annually. That means that virtually we would need 55,000 funds. Well, I don't, I don't think it's annual, but okay, yes, we need to remove a lot of carbon from the air. That's true. We need thousands and thousands of funds like this. There's definitely a constraint of capital. But what could we do, I guess, questions for you guys as parting thoughts, what could we do to accelerate this race? You know, the time is ticking and yet we seem really lost 
it's a nascent industry. We're trying to figure it out. It, it was very clear in, in this conversation. We're all trying to figure it out. What can we do as a space to help accelerate this whole race? Isabel, you, why don't you go first? Yeah. So one thing which we haven't uh, touched uh, till now is the uh, CSRD. So I'm sorry about these acronyms. It's the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Disclosure. So a very nice name. And in combination with the SFDR, that might have a, an impact. So I, now I explain you what, what it is. So the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Disclosure is the non-financial disclosure uh, obligation of companies. So they have their financial reports and then they report on all their non-financial aspects. Under these non-financial aspects, they have to disclose what type of financial assets do they have. Okay, so it, it's a bit tricky to, to, to think this way. But then they will have to disclose in their asset allocation how much is uh, Article 6, how much is Article 8, and how, mu how much is Article 9. So now if you go to the very big asset allocators, so like the insurers and so on, actually they could already now try to allocate their funds accordingly. So and say, well, okay, we want to, to have a more sustainable policy and we want to allocate more money to Article 9 products, but they don't. I mean, we are in discussion with many, many of them. And for the time being, it is still not an issue because the reports have not been published. So nobody cares. Okay. So I'm very optimistic that in two years time, when the first reports will have been published and, and uh, analyzed by whatever NGOs, <laughs> whoever, uh, then we will realize how few of all this money and even European money is allocated to sustainable products. And it's, we are very small size and very retail. So an allocation in, in your fund or in our fund is small, but if you allocate everywhere in all these funds, you will have an impact and attributed impact even is then big enough to, at the end, in an aggregation, produce an effect. And for the time being, these allocators don't care and they have most of their assets allocated on a return expectation basis. So I am quite confident that these things will change because we cannot afford to, to stay like this and to, to have all this regulation and without meaning or sense. So that's one thing that makes me really, well, hoping that things will change. The second thing is this topic has been something for, for, for dreamers or for freaks for, for years. I mean, investing in clean tech was something like it was a very, very small portion of the ecosystem. I mean, my colleagues have been investing in clean tech for 15 years and they were like a very small niche. And now it's something which is, which has be become cool or we let's try to have it becoming normal. And then we will have an, a real impact because in the combination of all of, of all of us, we will be able to, to invest in the right business models and not in things that nobody needs or nobody cares. I mean, if you analyze what are, there is a very interesting report that I really like of the World Economic Forum on the risks, uh, the main global risks and the riskiest and most likely risks are all climate or, 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 or weather related or nature related. So we need transformative technologies that solve these problems. There are business opportunities. We need more capital deployment. And at the end, we will need the financing of this type of technologies and funds. And if we don't shit, you know, if we, if we really try to, to have the right way of working with this money, then they will trust us and they will invest in us. Thanks so much for this great conversation. It feels like we only scratched the surface. 
So yeah. hopefully we can have another episode to dive into, you know, real case studies. Um, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. To all of you, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to more great speakers. We have an amazing lineup coming up. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A climate tech VC. To learn more about Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.